Hello, everyone. Welcome to Chosen by Committee, the podcast where I, Josh Heron, uh, Christopher Munden, and John Rose, Hello. read every Pulitzer Prize winning play 1918 so you don't have to, or maybe so that you will. Um, my name is Josh Heron. Like I said, I am a speaker. And uh, when theater is happening, theater writer. Um, I am joined by theater maker, John Rosenberg. Hello. And uh, founder of the one, the only, Cindy.com, and soccer coach to the children, uh, Christopher Munden. Hello, Josh. Today, we are talking about Eugene O'Neill's Anna Christie. Um, this is Mark's, Eugene O'Neill's second Pulitzer Prize win uh, of the 1920s. So he won uh, the 1920 Pulitzer and the 1922 Pulitzer. Um, and then there's one more coming up uh, in the 1920s that he won. And then uh, we have a fourth one many months away <laughs> um, in the 1960s. Um, but before we get started talking about this, uh, John, will you uh, fill everyone in with a brief summary of uh, Anna Christie? Sure, Anna Christie is, I like, you know, we read this a few days ago. Um, I think of it more and more as a, as a sea shanty, which I think is a sea tale. But it, uh, the title refers to Anna Christie, who is the daughter of a man named, uh, Chris Christopherson, Chris Christopherson, uh, who is a sea captain. So Anna Christie is a young woman who travels to New York City to be reunited with her father, who she hasn't seen in 15 years. Anna is about 20 years old. Um, so she goes to a bar to find her father. Uh, she finds her father there. They are reunited. Little does her father know that she has run away from a farm and a terrible turn of events where she was forced to be a prostitute. Upon being reunited, uh, the father invites the daughter to come live with him on his coal barge, which she does. And, uh, you know, they're trying to start again on a life. On the coal barge, uh, they rescue a ship. And on the ship, they pull a young Irishman onto the ship named Mark. Mark right away falls in love Matt. with the daughter Anna Christie. Matt. Matt. Uh, Mark, Matt. Matt. They uh, a a battle ensues between the father and Matt over Anna and her soul and which way her life should go. Uh, the father wants her to have nothing to do with this sailor. The sailor obviously wants her to be with her. Uh, Anna Christie finally. You know, she's been hiding the fact that she was a prostitute. She finally tells them both. They both have very, very negative reactions to it. Uh, they both push away from her. And the end of the play uh, finds the two men making a, you know, making a rash, rash decision regarding her and their future. Yeah, that's what happens. Uh, I thought we maybe would think a little bit about um, Beyond the Horizon, um, which we read a couple weeks ago, um, and maybe 
how these two plays are similar or different, um, given that they're both Eugene O'Neill plays and they were both, you know, um, put up pretty close together. Uh, do you, Chris, do you think of, like, do you see similarities between them? Um, and if so, what are those? Um, I do see similarities. I think, I think he's showing his range. I think um, Beyond the Horizon has like a tight family unit. Um, it's more kind of, say, in a way traditionally plotted and it's, uh, um, it's more self-contained. It's all on one farm. Um, I'd seen another of his plays from around the same time, Harry Eight, which is really quite different, kind of impressionist, expressionistic, um, all like things standing in as themes. And um, and you see that some here, the C. Uh, uh, we hear a lot, Chris, old Chris, cursing the C as, um, as a kind of like fate. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I was thinking about the language a little bit, um, about how um, there's such beautiful language in parts of Beyond the Horizon. Um, and stage directions. Well, both. Um, this... But I think of like, there's that monologue early on in Beyond the Horizon where he's telling, um, I think Sarah, or like the the like his soon to be wife about all the things he wants to do sort of um out there. including go see the sea including to go see the sea right um and i feel like that language is sort of absent in anna christie but what's in its place is this sort of very like salty like i think calling it a sea shanty is sort of the right like way to think about it right this very nautical sort of um yeah, the way it's written, at least two of the characters, two of the characters at least are foreign, right? The uh, Chris Christopherson is old Swedish sailor, and he is written very much like dialect, right? So, um, in, in like a in a dialect that is written so thickly that you sort of have to speak yeah, it's like, out loud to figure out like what. reading Irving Welsh. And I think even though like Beyond the Horizon is presented uh, as like uh, very naturalistic. I, I actually, I think this play is so, uh, it's so strange and foreign. Like I, you know, I really don't think of the father as really human, nor as Matt as human. Um, I really do think of it as like, um, you know, there, there's this there's this story where like it starts, and I feel like they almost conjure uh, Chris into into showing up in the same way. Like if you say, uh, I don't know, Beetlejuice three times or something like that. There's there's almost the same feeling that uh, people are conjured into. You know, they're like conjured into being, and there's something almost not believable about that. It's very much true. In a way, they also do that with Matt, right? In the first scene with Chris, it starts off in a bar, and you have these drunks at the bar. You have the mailman come in and deliver a letter, 
And like, do you know who this is? And yeah, it's Chris Christopherson. He's sometimes he's here every few months when he's not at sea. And then within like 10 minutes, he comes in and gets his letter. It's from his long lost daughter. And within another 10 minutes, she's on stage in the bar. It's pretty unbelievable. Yeah. Oh dear. Story. I said it's pretty unbelievable. I said. It's I said. Unbelievable. <laughs> right, and I. Uh, I guess for me, like, uh, it's supposed to be unbelievable and it's supposed to be almost supernatural in a sense. Like so many things happen right away and it is possible that like, uh, I might be reading too much into it, but I almost, uh, I like the brazenness of the fact that, you know, they, they mention him and there's the letter and then all of a sudden he shows up and then the daughter, like 15 minutes later. Yeah. I think that's, uh, I think that's something that um, I sort of like rolled my eyes at at first and it has been playing with me well the more I've been with it. Um, I think I sort of wish that it had a more subtle sort of um, beginning. Um, There's not well, much unsaid. Everything well, no, is said. Right, except I was thinking, I was actually thinking about this outside that like, you know, the only one that sees, you know, the, I forget the name of the, the dad's girlfriend, Mary Marty. Marty. Right. She recognizes that the fact, the fact that the daughter has like, was a prostitute basically. Right. But it's never and said. No, it's said in the state, like when uh, O'Neill introduces Anna Christie, he says she's dressed right. like she's been a prostitute. Right, right. but that's not, but that's not, but it's not, uh, it's not, it's set not said on stage. No, I think, no, I think it is. I mean, it's like in sort of the coded language at the time, but certainly, but the, but the fact is, what's interesting to me is that the father and Matt don't see it. No, no. no. And to the but, father, she looks like high class because she's right. And I, and I think that's interesting that you know, it's not just like everyone's like, look at the whore. But do you think that's class position or do you think that's like, like, I think that's really interesting to like make the choice that her father doesn't see her as looking like a prostitute because he's so low class that like she looks great. I, I don't think it's that. I think that like. No, it's I think that's like in the stage direction says, actually. Like, I like a t-shirt that says like, I'm a prostitute. And he would be like, not like he's like blinders. Like, He's like delusional. Sure, but but in the same way that like uh, you know, when I see my son, I'm filled with you know so much joy or whatever. And you look at him, he's like, yeah, it's a kid. You yeah. know what I mean? Oh. That like I think what I enjoy is the that everyone's perception is warped except for the dad's girlfriend, basically. Mm -hmm. And you know, she's the most decent person. Um, and it, yeah, I was thinking like how this would have just been a very different play if she, if the daughter was like, you know what, maybe I'll go with you instead and we can get an apartment together and be pickpockets or something. <laughs> I would watch that play. 
Right. Instead, they spend the next three acts in a completely different setting on a barge with only reduced from like eight to ten characters down to three. Yeah, it, it, it's it's funny to me that like um, it's funny to me that you that you are bothered by that. You know what I mean? Like to me, it's like. Uh, it's weird. It's weird to me that there's something called the family entrance in that first scene that people walk through. Mm-hmm. You know what That's I mean? That's how bars like, used to be, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I guess so. But I, I guess part of it is I might just be reading too much into everything. But like, I don't know the stability of land versus like being on the boat. Um, I bet there's a lot of that that's intentional, based on how his other plays seem very like symbol symbolic and and i think he at least in his other plays he's drawn a lot from like um like that trend in german theater you know everything stands for something yeah i think just like settings are huge like the i mean or like the land like that's actually a really interesting thread right like the land is such a potent symbol in beyond the horizon right Mm -hmm. and so this in some ways like if you if you're following that, like this is a really interesting sequel, right? We're going from like this rural farm that like has gone to ruin, which symbolizes the decay of this family, to like the literal edge of the land at the bar near the sea, where like sort of the wayward, like uh, vice-ridden, seafaring seafaring folk are like about um, to sort of like the lawless reckless like um land of the or not land like place of the last three acts that are um that are based on the sea i i it makes me think of and i don't (laughs) this episode is feeling very like name droppy so i'm uh i don't want to like do more of that but um it like i recently saw um jam sings sing um uh, Riders to the Sea, which has that same thing of the sea um, being literally and very symbolically like um, the sort of like uh, supernatural um, awe, like literally awesome force um, that can sort of like has a mind of its own and can take life and can give life um, and sort of needs to be appeased. Um, and I think it has sort of the same potency here. Yeah, and and I guess if you ask the the differences or similarities between the two plays, you know, the beyond the horizon, there was like a, there was just a rot to everything, but it was try they kept trying to cover things up or something. You know what I mean? Like, don't tell them, don't tell them, don't tell them. I guess when you said the thing about reckless, this play just seemed so emotionally reckless to me even though like in the same way that it's like it's all kind of based off of a truth being withheld which was that she was a prostitute or something but it just seems it just seems way more reckless uh emotionally to me um this also feels i was thinking about how both of eugene o'neill's plays compared to the other two we've read feel more timeless um like why mary for sure like very product of its time. Mrs. Lubet feels very product of its time. Um, Beyond the Horizon, I would say, uh, 
feels certainly more timeless than those, but you know, there's some parts of the plot involving like Latin America and speculation um, that I think sort of date it specifically. But Ugh, it could be actually, like, I don't know, man. I think <laughs> I think speculation is it, man. It's 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 an all-time high, man. And I wonder if that's just like really skillful playwriting, or if it's like an intention of the type of stories he's writing. Um, but like, I feel like this could be put on, and it could be set now. I mean, the coal barge would be a little strange. But like, no, yeah, it could be now. it could be in space in like three hundred years. But like, I think <laughs> no. What, but like, right, of what, Mars. <laughs> but what drives it is like the, you know, and I think what, what was so inspiring to me about the O'Neill stuff is that like how much he's just examining human folly and uh, blindness in character of people and just like seeing what we want to. Uh, and it, I guess that's part of being timeless is just being so relatable in a sense. I mean, it's stated in that the male reaction to her being a prostitute. I don't know, man. <laughs> it's pretty overblown. I don't know, man. Like, I feel what you're saying that, like, uh, yeah. <laughs> no, but you could still play. You could still play that now. Yeah. But oh, um, it's me. Absolutely. To me, not, yeah, to me, it's not yeah. a question of playing it. I mean, I think. I think the, uh, you know, the, this, I'll, I'll bore you with the thing, but I remember I met this dude once who said something interesting that he, when he was young, he had this naive belief that because the Greeks figured something out, like some, you know, something about love or something like that, it surprised him that all people after that weren't born with that knowledge. Mm. And, you know, there's something so great about just the, uh, how stupid we are as a species that we can make all these advancements, but each time we start over and just because we know something doesn't mean that we know it. Yeah. Um, so I feel like we've talked a lot about what we like about the play, but um, to put a point to it, like maybe what was, uh, and John, you've been a real champion of, of Anna Christie. What do you think is your favorite thing that this play brought to you? Uh, say it one more time, my favorite what's thing. The, what's your favorite part of this? Like plot point or a, a, a choice in his dialogue or? I mean, to me, I felt like just the uh, the Irish sailor being plucked out of the sea just, um, and I, you know, I didn't see it coming, but it just like catapulted the story uh, onto the fate that it had to go down. And, I, and that's what I really loved. And it like, it didn't take time to build. He like, he was like flopped onto the ship almost like a, a fish out of water or something like that. And he, you know, was fighting for her love right away. So to me, the, the, the entrance of the Irishman and a very realistic portrayal of Irish people, <laughs> but that really, that's, that to me is what set the play in motion for me. What about you, Chris? Um, one of my favorite things about it, I really, I mean, my favorite scene was certainly the end of the third act. Um, yeah, that's what I was going to say. From, from when, you know, she is, she's feeling like they're both competing for her affection and she's like, no, 
you drove me to this. I have to tell you this. And she has a very emotional scene where she tells them about um, her past. And then their reaction to it is so extreme. And, and again, such a like heightened, a scene of heightened emotion on that part. I, I bet that that could be an incredible scene on stage, that whole act. Yeah, he does conflict just so. That fight, that family fight scene in Beyond the Horizon is one of my favorites. That scene at the end of that here is just. Yeah, know. and of course, uh, um, not Long Day's Journey, uh, Moon for the, yeah, Long Day's Journey into Night, the, the family dynamics, the family fights in that are extreme and brilliantly done. Excited to get to that uh, yeah. next year. Um, I was going to say that, I, so that was my favorite thing, but I'll also add that I think he captures this idea um, of, of like a parent, a parental figure who, like, despite giving all evidence that they are not making the right choice for their child or are certainly not making a selfless choice, um, continue to believe in their own sort of like, narrative as like a stupendous parent um chris christopherson wants so bad to be, to be a good father and wants so bad for his daughter to um live a life that is like better than his um and it is until the like very very like like until there is no evidence left or no like possible place um until he sort of reckons with it and then after he reckons with it decides to like no nah, i'm gonna still live in denial yeah you know the, the 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 other thing i was thinking about is the fact that he basically switches women he goes from like having uh Marty. Uh, yeah he has her in his bed and then basically that night he switches it out for his daughter, which is super strange. You know, he like, he brings her onto like, it, yeah, he makes very, very selfish choices, bring her onto the boat. Like, yeah, he's, he, he's, he's, yeah, he's a blind captain, which is a bad thing. Um, who would you be if you were someone in this play? I I'm taking Marth Marthy. Um, that's you. I mean, that's what I wish. I think. I, yeah, I think I'm Marthy. I think like I think I'm the. T I like to think I'm the type of person that like if my boyfriend was like, "I gotta go, my daughter's coming," I'd be like, "Don't worry about me. Marthy's always fine. <laughs> I'll land on my feet, kid. <laughs> You're not the first man that's done this." Um, I really like her. It's an interesting question of who, who in the play were asked to relate to. I mean, yeah, my th first thought was like Johnny the priest, the bartender, right? Of the three main characters, uh, who's the central figure even? Uh, has to be Anna Christie, but in some ways she gets less voice than the two men. And neither of the two men are portrayed particularly sympathetically at all. Yeah, 
the violent, the drunks. So it has to be Anna, who's who's the focal point of the play. And yet, I don't know if we're asked to like relate to her and and give her our sympathy. I mean, I, I definitely think that we're that we are asked to relate to her and uh, and uh, either find sympathy or understanding because I I feel like. The other piece to this is like the unconditional nature of Anna's relationship with these men. That like, even though her father has done these things to her in the past, like there's, she still keeps trying, you know, like even though, uh, you know, with, with Matt, even though he like threatens to kill her, <laughs> you know, there, there's still the, this She's promise. still, marriage is saving her. Yeah, and there there's something brutally terrible about it. And I guess at you know at, at different times in our lives with different people, we do imbue different we we take on the characteristics of the different characters, you know. With certain people, I'm I in my past I'm definitely like the Matt dude. With other people, you know, like with my son, you know, if it'll be like with with the Christopher character making mistakes but you know, blindly trying to go down a path that I think is right, even though it serves my own interests. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like Anna, Anna is almost like not drawn so vividly. And it, it's almost everything is painted around her. So we're left with the shell of who she is. You know? Yeah, that's maybe more the case than that we don't feel sympathy for her. That she she's not painted as fully and deeply in some ways. I um, agree with I agree with Seymour. Uh, I don't know what that what, is. What did Seymour say? <laughs> I think Seymour's di Seymour's disagreeing with us. But, Seymour, my dog is saying that's a dog. Yes, but you know, it is interesting, like who he chooses to paint so vividly are these two men that are so irrational or just terrible depictions of, of like men, you know, like, yes, yeah, she's, she's struggled under men her whole life. And they are, they are terrible. These two men too. Yeah. And I, I almost like to think that like a function of her, dealing with these men is the over like the overbearing nature of their personalities or how they act. So it, and, almost, uh, it almost drowns her out. And the supposed affection for her becomes overbearing and becomes fickle. And then when she regains it, she loses them, right? I mean, the, we should talk about the ending. The ending is peculiar, unsatisfying in some ways, and yet, and yet, uh, fitting and and satisfying. I expected it to end somehow more tragically, and it ends with her regaining the affection of both of the men. But that's in the context of them deciding to depart on the same boat to South Africa the very next day. I would say I think the ending is pretty sad. 
It's sad. Oh, and uh, it's so funny. I read it. I read it. It made me laugh so hard at the end. I thought it was so great. I mean, I think it's a. I think it's a really interesting ending. Uh, it is a really interesting ending. Unexpected. But I also, I also didn't think of it as sad though, because to me, like these people don't function in person. It's almost the promise, or you know as a story that they tell someone else that they can have control over. In person, someone either is about to get fucking stabbed or shot or, you know what I mean? Like, but the two men leaving, they get to be like in charge and on their way and they're probably going to die on the boat. Yeah, my supposition is that that boat sinks. (laughs) Right. And then she's left with uh, either a memory or just the money of them, you know? And it, and as she says, all men are complete garbage. Um, yeah, she. I, mean, I, yeah. I think it just it's just. I guess I don't know. Like they're like they're all. I guess Anna's in a slightly better place than she was at the beginning of the play. She's more independent, I guess. They're both going to send her her money, their money, supposedly, right? Yeah. And so she can, you know, have a life and a house and she can, you know. She's going to get married, right? And have the two men sailing around the world sending her their checks until the first week when the boat sings. Um, was there anything that you, uh, you didn't like about the play, Chris? Yeah. I mean... I uh, I thought it was like heavily plotted that like unbelievability of it did get to me and so you know the right the, the father coming right after the letter the woman the daughter coming right after he reads the letter um and then the strangeness of that like fall vividly depicted first scene in the bar and then the next three acts um being on the boat um it felt almost like uh different plays to me i don't know how it meshed and then yeah the the idea of um i mean i think in beyond the horizon um they felt like more real well-rounded people um the characters in this were vividly drawn but um uh, but kind of cartoonish almost in some ways and, and, and felt less real somehow. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, I, and it's been interesting, is like, I I'm, I'm sort of would like to know how they, these plays are evaluated. Um, I think this is the one that's more produced and better received. Well, I know that I meant as, in terms of in the holistically, like, the Pulitzer, is it given, it's not, it doesn't seem like it's given to production. It's given to like a script. No. So. Well, we have no idea. Um, so like, I'm trying to think of the, like, this as a literary work versus this as like a piece of theater that could get produced. Because I will say that like my biggest pet peeve, of, like not pet peeve, my biggest issue with this as a reading experience was that I found it probably the hardest of the plays so far to get through. 
because I think that would go away. I got used to the dialect, and I think that would go away a lot on stage. Um, someone would, someone would, uh, would speak those lines and bring them to life. I have seen this production and I, I, a production of it or a reading of it, and I didn't really recall having seen it. But um, high praise. High praise. But it was by good people. Uh, John, is there anything you didn't like about this? No, I mean, I liked it, and and the more the more I think about it, the more like, yeah, I I appreciate the design. I appreciate the approach. I appreciate the just his style of telling the story. You know, the more I think about the dad, the more I love that. In the first scene, he's dead fucking drunk. Yeah. In the second scene, it's so foggy, he can't even really see. Like, I guess just the, just the notion of impairment and like... He's dead drunk in the fourth act too, isn't he? Yeah, just like the amount of... Uh, yeah, I just like how he told the story. No, they're, they're, Josh, there's nothing about it I didn't like. I, I, I learned a lot from reading it and I really enjoyed it. So, John, is this your favorite play that we've read so far? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I definitely enjoyed Beyond the Horizon, but this one, yeah, this one is like, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a reckless beast, and I always appreciate that uh, in theater. I think Beyond the Horizon still seals it for me. It's still I number say, one. This this process is turning into a. I'm um, I'm very grateful we have some Eugene O'Neill in between the like social comedies. Of <laughs> Twenty. Yeah, the Eugene O'Neill's are definitely the best two plays we've read. I still think I prefer Beyond the Horizon. Um, but but this is this is a great play too. Let me ask oh sorry, let me pose a question. Is there anything in reading these old plays that you see show up in uh, plays that you new plays that you come across now? I mean, I think of the stuff that, like, the stuff that Chris was talking about, right, of, like, the the strangeness of some of the way the acts are written, like, couldn't happen now, right? Like, you're going to have, like, an eight-person ensemble for one act of four, and then the next three acts are three people. Like, that just would never get made now. It would be too expensive. Oh, uh, yeah, it gets made. Uh, it, got, it won an Olivia for Best Revival in 2012 and, and a Tony for Best Revival. I mean, it would get a revival. It's Eugene O'Neill, but I'm saying like a new, like a new a play, new play couldn't do this. Yeah. Um, and even as a Eugene O'Neill, I think probably that would restrict it from getting done too much and maybe some some of that first act would be cut or characters combined. You maybe don't need two lunch shortmen ordering drinks at the beginning and then disappearing. And a postman and two barkeeps <laughs> yeah. and a girlfriend. But, but I think, but I'm wondering is like, you know what I mean? If you read Shakespeare, you then see is yeah. like either style or work show up in later works. Is there anything that you two see I mean, from I, this I think, play? I mean, I think the way he writes conflict is like, I don't yeah. know if it's like the, I don't know if it's like the thing, like, I don't know if it's like the way you write conflict, but it certainly is like, 
great. It's great at its yes. Um, Timelessly good. It's really good. And and yeah, maybe at at the best writers would write like that now. Um, I don't know. I don't. I, I mean, I, I feel like also. Yeah, I'm curious as we read more of these, right? Like as we get to like Arthur Miller, who I'm sure was like heavily influenced by Eugene O'Neill and Tennessee Williams. Like I think some of these like bigger figures will like I think see how they evolve and and change versus like the writing of his contemporaries. Um, I think he's probably influenced by like who um, Ibsen and Chekhov. I, I, Chekhov, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, Ibsen in terms of plotting, like I, like whenever I read, probably the play I've read the most is A Doll's House. And oh. one of the things I always come away with is just like, that thing is like a machine. <laughs> like from the very first page at like the, it's like a, what are those machines called? The fun ones with the rats and the marbles? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Rube Goldberg, it's like a Rube Goldberg machine, right? Where like the very first line like, boop, flicks the marble and then, you're just watching it all. It's like three hours of just inevitability after inevitability. Um, and parts of that, parts of this feel like that. Um, hmm. uh, and I think he's probably also influenced by like, um, you know, symbolic plays that are coming out around the same time. Just, just that, you know, he's probably an English teacher's dream in terms of like, what does the C mean in Eugene O'Neill, so-and-so, right? Um, what do you think, your, what would your dream production be? John's would be on Mars. <laughs> Coming next season to HelloFresh. Well, I did see the trailer for Jude Law's uh, production where he actually looks a little scrawny, but he, does, he is topless in his... Uh, in his rescue from the sea scene. He plays Anna Christie? He plays Anna Christie, yeah. That Topless. would be cool. That'd be cool. I could see male Anna Christie. Oh man. Gay Anna Christie is like what? <laughs> like Yeah, it would work. It would work. It'd be a level illusion of like Chris Christopherson might be like lovely. Right. Anna Chris and Christie would have been a previously straight guy. And then they're horrified to hear that she that he was actually like a real gay slut back in Minnesota. My cousin was the first. (laughs) And I went to a house. Um uh I would like to see this play on a boat. Yeah. Maybe. Actually, and I, I think, like, I was thinking, like, with a bar and then you move to a boat. But maybe just mm. a boot cruise where, like, the first act is in the bar of the boat and then we move. I saw Eugene O'Neill's early plays. Um, they were billed as the sea plays, but they're all, like, one act set on a boat, set on his travels. And And when I saw that, they were... Um, site specific on one of those boats on the Delaware, and it really worked well. I think this would be real cool to see on a boat. You know, the the thing I was just thinking about was like the the different experience that people have reading a play because it's interesting that because I've never read Ibsen um, or Chekhov, so like 
what I think of as revolutionary, you know, you could be like, well, actually it's like pulling from something else. You know what I mean? So I was just thinking like how interesting it is just the experience of reading it. Um, you know what I mean? Like to me, it seems so something. You have to. My new you dog, Timor, is uh, the polite way to say it is pumping the living shit. That's fantastic, man. That's love. Yeah. Okay. That is what's his name? Matt Burke. That's Seymour should play Matt Burke. Seymour is gay as shit. Um, what's I, I picture Matt as like a really large, imposing figure. No, I think of him as a pit bull. No. It's a mix of white and and brown. Is that what Seymour is? Yes. <laughs> I could see you as Matt Jung. You know what I don't think of me as is either large or imposing. <laughs> but Irish and drunk. Mm. Violent. Yeah, no, I was I was violent when I drank, absolutely. Judgmental oh. hatred of women. <laughs> <laughs> right. What do you do you have a why do you think it won a, a Tony or a Tony, a Pulitzer? Because it's really fucking good. Yeah, I think of its time too. I bet that like prostitution um, plot was was risque and was like was something unusual on stage and something people talked about. I bet it was a talked about production, a talked about play. Yeah, I was thinking about there's that line in the Pulitzer sort of like rules still about like good manners. And I do feel like this play has some very bad manners. Yeah. I don't know if, I mean, it's been interesting. I feel like we've read four pretty different plays, even if two of them have been Eugene O'Neill. Yeah. And what it feels like the, they alternate between these, like, I don't know, <laughs> some sort of like, so, like, some sort of like weird sex farce. And no the movie farce. version of this was a. Uh, Greta Garbo's first speaking role, really first weird. talkie. And in a way, like when you asked, when I was talking about the prostitution, this is like, seems like in some ways a classic, like pre-Hayes Code movie. Mm. I mean, there's something I also appreciate about the schizophrenic, uh, manic uh, nature of like, one year it's a charming comedy and the next year it's a stab at like uh, realism or something like that. It's cool. It's neat that they're not all the same. Next week we have a play called Icebound by Owen Davis, which will... Uh, he was my great-great-grandfather. No, he wasn't. No. Um, which is about a will and extended family and some betrayal and some <laughs> forbidden love. Um, so that sounds like right up my alley. <laughs> All right. Well, we will see you, um, next week when we talk about that. Um, thank you for listening. Bye, Seymour. Bye.